Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with Spencer Raskoff. You may know him as the co-founder and former CEO of Zillow, the online real estate marketplace which he launched in 2006, but before that, he was one of the founders of Hotwire.com. Since stepping down as CEO of Zillow in 2019, Spencer's launched several other new companies including .LA, Picasso Homes, and Supernova Partners, which is a SPAC, an acronym for Special Purpose Acquisition Company, which has been immensely popular this year and something we talk more about towards the end of the episode. We start off our conversation, as we always do, by learning about Spencer's background and upbringing. I grew up in New York until I was 12. And when I was 12, my parents told my brother and me that we were moving to L.A., and I was pretty upset about it, actually. I had never been to L.A. I didn't want to move to L.A. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. And um, But we didn't get a vote. And um, uh, we moved I, the summer before sixth grade when I was 12. And I loved it right away. Uh, I got here to L.A. and I was like, oh, my God, I have a backyard and the sun is shining. And this is just a, such a better lifestyle than living in a tiny little shoebox in Manhattan. And I was into it right away. Um, so then I grew up in LA from uh, age 12 to, to 17 and went off to college in Boston. What was the college called? I know, I know a lot of folks who went to Harvard <laughs> that never want to say they went to Harvard. We have, a, uh, we have one of our closest friends. He went to Stanford. And every time you ask him up north. where he went to business, it was like up north. It's like, where'd you go, bro? Like no one, know, no one knows All where right. up north is. You could have gone to San Jose State. Guilty, guilty. All right. I went to Harvard. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, which, which people ascribe too much you know, too much credit to that. Um, right. You know, right. having gone to Harvard basically just means that I had my act together in high school. You know, like I got good grades and I did, had a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, a lot of people don't get their act together until a little bit later. But I had my act together in high school right. and I was lucky enough to get into Harvard. Um, mm-hmm. So Harvard was a great experience and um, learned a lot, met a lot of great people. <clears throat> and um, but I didn't know what I wanted to do like most people. And. Um, so after Harvard, I ended up going to wall street, which is kind of what you do if you don't know what to do. Um, and, and you're at Harvard. (laughs) Um, so I went to wall street. I worked at Goldman Sachs, which, um, was a great experience for two years, but I decided I didn't want to be an investment banker. And so I moved to San Francisco to try my hand in private equity, which, uh, private equity buyouts are basically when you buy and sell companies. And that was a better fit for me than investment banking, but I ultimately wanted to do something more entrepreneurial and uh, move into startups, which is what I did next. So Spencer, before we talk about that stuff, uh, I'm curious a little bit about you know your family. Were they um, entrepreneurs? I mean, what was their impact on you know your educational choices or your career choices, if at all? Yeah, so they, they definitely had a, a big impact. Um, my mom was a teacher when I was a kid, a uh, teacher and a real estate agent, and my dad was an entrepreneur. My dad started his career uh, at an accounting firm and became a partner at an accounting firm and was kind of, you know, went to Penn and was straight laced, grew up an Orthodox Jew, was, you know, right down the middle of the fairway kind of square. And, um, but through a really weird coincidence of happenstance ended up leaving his white shoe accounting firm 
to enter the music industry in the early 1970s. Mm. So he became the tour, um, the tour accountant for the Rolling Stones 1972 European tour and um, ended up leaving the firm and starting his own uh, music management company and then became a tour producer and tour promoter and business manager for rock groups uh, starting in the early 70s. And so I saw I was born in 1975. And so I grew up learning from him and his history of entrepreneurialism in the music industry, which was really fascinating for me. So his clients were the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, Leonard Skinner, uh, 38 Special, uh, Shakira, um, I don't know, on and on. Just and a bunch of small acts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The police. Um, so, uh, you know, Elvis Presley. So, you know, people that, you know, people that have, have done, done some cool things. Um, but, but what, you know, what I learned from him was the importance of continuous reinvention and disruption, you know, as we call it in tech today, they didn't call it that in the music industry in the seventies, eighties and nineties, but he and his partners pioneered and, and really created a bunch of things that we take for granted today in the music industry. So I'll give you some couple quick examples. Um, the concept of residency, uh, which today we think of, oh yeah, you know, Britney Spears or Celine Dion or the Chainsmokers or whoever, you know, they're at this place in Vegas for six months or a year. That didn't exist until my dad and his partners in, I think it was 1989, 80, 88, 87, somewhere in that range, reunited Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel to have Simon and Garfunkel for 30 nights in a row at the Paramount Theater at Madison Square Garden, which no one had never done before. I mean, it was always, you would always play one or two shows in a city and then you'd move on. And my dad thought, well, there's an audience to see Simon and Garfunkel 30 nights in a row in, in New York. Um, and so that was pioneering. He and his partner also pioneered what's called Bowie Bonds. So this is when David Bowie securitized his music um, catalog and sold off a piece of the future royalties of, of his music catalog, which is something that everybody does today. Uh, the Calvin Harris, the Chainsmokers, Britney Spears, um, uh, Taylor Swift, you know, all of these artists now, uh, it's, it's pretty normal to sell your catalog or sell portions of your catalog. Um, and they invented that with David Bowie. Um, and then the third thing, which I'd point to is something that we can all relate to, which is just these mega tours. So starting with the Stones tour in 1989, um, that was the first real 360 tour, as they call it, which means that the capital, in that case, my dad and his partners bought the tour outright from the band. So they raised a couple hundred million dollars from investors and they bought the tour such that the Rolling Stones basically worked for them for a couple of years. And that turned the concert industry on its head. And that's the way things work now. The artist now gets this huge advance and they get a piece of the profits of their tour, but a company or investor group basically buys out the tour and takes all the risk. And as in exchange for that, they get everything. They get the, the merchandise revenue, the box office revenue, the ancillary revenue, the you know the live recording rights, et cetera. And, and it was that invention in 1989 with the Stones that kicked off a period all the way to this day of these mega tours. That's what allowed these tours to have um, you know huge budgets and, and be global for multi-years, et cetera. So he, he was right in the midst of creating that with his partners. Um, so it was a fascinating way to grow up. And I went to a lot of concerts as a kid. <laughs> Clearly, most summers I was touring with the Rolling Stones or U2. And, um, but I, I, for me, it was just a, um, you know, a one big business lesson.
Yeah, that sounds like a cool childhood. Um, were they doing this just like privately, like on their own, or were they working with the labels at the time? Uh, not with the labels. They um, they were doing it on their own. Um, they ultimately sold part of their business to American Express and part of their business to Live Nation. Um, and then they would do big sponsorship deals. So I think that 1989 Stones tour was Budweiser, if I remember correctly, gave them just you know a, a huge amount of money to be the global sponsor, which again, had never really been done before. Um, so sometimes the capital came from a sponsor group or, or just from wealthy individuals or um, you know, wherever yeah. they raise capital from. It was basically a startup. And you know, if I can relate it to what I do today, I watched my dad essentially start company after company. In 1989, it was this, you know, the Rolling Stones Steel Wheels tour. And in 1990, it was the Rolling Stones Urban Jungle tour. And in 1994, it was the U2 Octane Baby tour, or whatever it was. And, and that startup requires, it needs to be staffed up and it would hire two or 300 employees, the lighting director and the choreographer and the merchandise director, et cetera. And that startup would raise capital um, from venture capitalists, essentially. And it would exist for a couple of years and, um, and then it would cease to exist by design, which is of course different from a normal startup. Um, but it was a series of startups in, in the form of touring. So, yeah, you're at Goldman, and then you said you go, you go to TPG. You're doing a uh, uh, private equity there, and that's like right around the time with the dot com crash and dot com boom. And so you mentioned, you know, wanting to be an entrepreneur. What about it at the time? What kind of clicked in you where you're like, I just want to leave and start a business? Was there like a particular idea that you're passionate about, or you just wanted to leave and do something on your own? Um, I wanted to be closer to the action of um kind of the energy um you know like i found investment banking and private equity very staid very um dull (laughs) um and kind of the energy and action of being an actual company and being close to the product and close to customers and um i I just felt I, i missed that energy in in the more uh I don't know, academic setting of private equity or investment banking. So um, I got very lucky. Um, and one of the deals that I was working on at TPG was to try to create a company from a number of airlines that TPG had a lot of ownership in. So TPG had bought out of bankruptcy America West Airlines and out of bankruptcy Continental Airlines. And so, and they had sold much of their Continental stake to Northwest. So when I was at TPG, we essentially controlled three US airlines. And the idea was to get those three airlines plus American United and um, uh, and U.S. Air together. So get six airlines back when there were six airlines um, uh, together to create a consortium company uh, of a discount travel website. And so this was 1999, first web boom. And this we called this project Purple Demon. And this was within TPG, like the this was like within the TPG. Of TPG. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was basically incubated at TPG. And so TPG put in 75 million bucks and those six, first six airlines um, signed contracts, which I, you know, I was on the deal team that negotiated and the contracts required the companies, those airlines to participate in, in a variety of ways, which we can get into if you want. Um, but, um, but that's what started the company. And then the partner at TPG and I uh, left to run the company. And so it was a startup with 75 million bucks, contracts with six airlines and two employees and no business, no name, you know, nothing. And we called it Project Purple Demon because we wanted it to sound cool. And that was, you know, the coolest name that two nerds could come up with. Um, 
And, and, you know, the interesting side story was that when we went to these six airlines, we said, hey, let's create a discount travel company to compete with Priceline in the discount space. And, and they were interested. They said, great. Will you also create a full price online travel company to compete with Travelocity and Expedia? And we said, no, you know, we're a private equity firm. We don't really incubate companies as kind of a one-off. Um, and those airlines said, okay, they went out and hired Boston Consulting Group, BCG, a consulting firm, to create what they called T2 which stood for Travelocity Terminator. And T2 would go on to become Orbitz, and Project Purple Demon would go on to become Hotwire. So Hotwire and Orbitz were started around the same time by these airlines, um, but um, TPG created Hotwire and BCG created uh, Orbitz. And many, many years later, they both ended up being owned by the same parent company, Expedia, and um, you know each followed their own circuitous routes there. Um, Hotwire's route was up and down and up and down for the four years that we were independent. And then we were getting ready to go public in 2003 when Expedia called and made us a, a very generous offer. I'm not sure if you said it, but I know you said you left TPG to, to run it full time. Was that something, were you able to spin it out of TPG eventually? And like yeah. Just, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely spun out as a, as a separate venture back company with TPG as our, our venture capital firm, essentially. So. Got it. Did you feel as though when you had left Harvard and done a few years of, you know, the investment banking, Wall Street stuff, that you were prepared to run a company? Oh, no. Or, or <laughs> yeah. Absolutely not. Um, no, I mean, well, I'm not sure you're ever really prepared to run a company, but but certainly at 23, I was not prepared to be co-founder. And, right. um, you know, originally I was CFO and COO. And ultimately the title that we settled on was, I think, VP of corporate development because it was nice and vague and it could allow me to sort of do whatever needed to be done. I'm curious, you know, you're 23. Why did they choose you? I mean, weren't there hundreds, if not thousands of other people? Like, why were you the, I don't know if you want to call it the lucky one, or why were you the chosen one in that case to go and lead these efforts? Well, I mean, $75 million is no joke. For well, so, so, so the, the sort of side story that gets to that was we actually, you know, the, my co-founder, who was a, a junior partner at TPG, and myself, who was an, a junior associate, you know, very young, early in my t- career, 23, we actually hired Spencer Stewart, the recruiting firm, to recruit a world-class CEO. Because you're right, we had, we had 75 million bucks. This wasn't a garage startup. And we're like, hey, let's go get a best in the world CEO. And he and I interviewed with Spencer Stewart, this top recruiting firm, dozens of candidates over a three month or so period. Because I had no intention of leaving, I was gonna stay at, at TPG. And we had, we had two, the profile of the CEO candidates fell into two buckets. We had, World-class CEOs. These were CEOs of you know big Fortune 1000 companies that were in their 50s or 60s, and they didn't seem like they had the you know dot-com ethos to succeed. I mean, they had run big successful companies, but they didn't seem like the type of people that were going to pull all-nighters, eat cold pizza, and roll up their sleeves and run through walls right. and do everything you need to do to like make a the, startup succeed. Like the hustler, you guys needed a hustler. They didn't have the hustle exactly. And then there was a second category of candidates who were in their late 20s, maybe early 30s, who had five years of internet experience, because that was all there was back then. The internet was basically five years old. And you know they had been at Excite and Lycos and Alta Vista and, and um, Netscape and kind of you know AOL, those early Web 1.0 leaders. But we looked at them and we're like, I don't know, these people don't really have anything that we don't have. Like, what a, what a big deal. They've been like, you know, bopping around some other company for a couple of years. But you know, and we just kind of looked at each other and we're like, we could do this. And so we went to TPG and we said, hey, you know, we want to leave the firm and go do it. And 
you know, there's definitely right place, right time in this because, you know, they took a big leap to, to entrust us with their, their startup and their money and their relationships with the airlines, which they delivered on a silver platter. Um, but they said yes. <laughs> so, um, hmm. so, you know, I, I think it, it, you know, it does go to show that there's definitely a fake it till you make it kind of thing that happens at startups. And as a young manager, I experienced this quite a bit. I mean, as a 23 year old, the first thing I had to do was go out and hire somebody who would manage our relationships with the airlines and someone who would manage the relationships with the hotel industry. And so I went out and hired somebody, you know, two people in their fifties that had, um, or maybe forties at the time that had 20 years of experience in the hotel and airline industry. And I remember sitting in my first one-on-one -on -one with the, the gentleman that ran the, the airline relationships thinking, you know, what could I possibly have to, to teach this person? I'm 23, he's 40 something. And he knows everything about the online tr or the travel industry. Um, and what do I know? And it changed my leadership style and my management um, approach, my approach to management, because I realized that he didn't need me to tell him what to do because he knew what to do. He needed me to be a, a player coach. He needed me to clear his roadblocks. He needed me to be a sounding board. He needed me to um, help him prioritize his time, not to direct him. And so I learned at a very early age out of necessity that the role of a great manager is not to be uh, directive, but it's to be a servant leader, To that, that really the manager works for the direct report, not the other way around. Spencer, on that point, I feel like, you know, you're describing more so like the generalist, right? As opposed to the specialist person who really understands a specific industry or a specific task or a specific skill set, right? Like there's, and there's a lot of both of those folks out there, but I feel like and perhaps I'm speaking from experience here, generalists have a bit of a harder time finding themselves in the entrepreneurial and business world because they're interested in a bunch of things and they're interested in being leaders and they're interested in, you know, owning a company or starting a company or whatever the case may be. In this case, you know, even though, sure, you were on this investment finance track, you suddenly had to switch over and become a generalist. You know, what's your advice? And this is more so switching over to advice now, but what's your advice to the people out there who are listening to us who are generalists, right, in their 20s, perhaps in their 30s, and don't know how to be a leader, right? You know, you talk about going out and hiring people and starting this company. Is that something that you advise these generalists out there to do? Like, hey, I don't know what to do. I know I'm a good leader. People like to listen to me. I'm, a good, at mar I'm good at marketing. I can figure this out. I can raise a little bit of money here and there. But, like, what do I do? Well, I, I mean... Sheryl Sandberg has this concept of, of the career jungle gym rather than the career ladder, which I like very much that, you know, our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation followed a conventional career ladder, you know, straight up a couple of years in each position, a couple of years in each rung. But our generation follows a career jungle gym. You go up a couple of steps, you go to the right, you go down, you go up again, you know, you get off the jungle gym entirely for three to five years and then you get back on it again. And, you know, she, she was referring in particular to the career path of, of working women, but I, I, in her book, Lean In, but I think it applies to both genders. I, that's how I've always followed my career, um, which is like, I mean, the hot wire thing is a perfect example where I left a much more lucrative path at TPG to take what was a big step backwards uh, to start hot wire. Um, within Zillow, I started running marketing. Then I stepped to the side to run finance. Then I moved into an operations role um, you know, then I ran uh, invest uh, in um, industry relations as well for a period of time. Like, and a lot of the people that I've mentored have 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 taken that kind of circuitous 
route as well. And I think it, I think it's really effective. I guess the, the most tactical advice I would give to somebody in the, in their kind of mid career is to try to solve problems for their managers as much as possible. So, you know, you really want to think to yourself, okay, or just ask your manager, like, what's your biggest issue? Like, what, 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 what do you worry the most about? And their answer would be like, I don't know, maybe, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really focused on making sure that we've got great salespeople properly positioned in, in order to take our product to market. Right. Uh, you know, and maybe you're an individual salesperson, an individual contributor. But now that you know that that's your manager's biggest challenge, well, help them solve that challenge somehow. I don't know. What, what is it? Uh, develop new sales collateral for your manager, you know, in your spare time or, um, you know, write up a white paper about different go to market strategies or, uh, you know, present some voice of the customer research that you do on your own saying, you know, this is how the marketplace perceives our product, like help solve that person's problem in order right. to help them succeed. And then that helps you get ahead. Yeah, that's amazing advice. I mean, something that, you know, I personally do in like the business development world, let's call it. And I think something that a lot of people can apply and it goes off of what you just said is asking the people that I'm dealing with the companies or the individuals, like what's the biggest problem I could solve for you and your company, right? Whether it has to do with what I work on or not, I could always connect you to somebody that can help solve your problem. But that just goes a long way to them because now the memory they have of you or the, or, you know, that feeling is like, oh, wow, you know, Posh helped me out, right? Pat helped me out. Spencer, you know, connected me to this person and this happened, that happened, and now you're the good guy, right? And so I think that, you know, that's great advice, I think, what you gave to a lot of folks that are, whether they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or even 60s and are just looking for change or looking to do something with, you know, their lives and careers, like, just be there for other people and just kind of that feeling or that, like, reciprocity concept, right? Like, just get, you know, you can't just ask, ask, ask all the time. You got to give some sort of value to get something out of it long term, but but that's that's amazing advice. So talking about Hotwire, I mean, what I mean, you obviously were there for a bit. T- tell us about what happened there and how you eventually uh, got out of it. So the company was started in 1999. We launched in 2000, and the internet bubble burst in 2000, which is when most of the first generation dot coms failed. We were okay though. We had raised enough money and we were doing all right. Um, and then 9/11 happened, and that was September 11, 2001. Many listeners probably don't know what year 9-11 was, so it was 2001, for those that don't know. Um, and 9-11 was obviously a tragedy for the country and the world, but it was also a very challenging time for us at the company at Hotwire um, for several reasons. First of all, I had been in New York giving a speech at the Millennium Hilton, which was um, which collapsed under under the World Trade Center the day before, or two days before, I should say. So I flew back on September 10th on the flight from Newark to SFO, the same flight that, that went down. Um, so I was saved by a day. Um, we had tens of thousands of travelers that were stranded that who we had sold tickets to that we needed to somehow reaccommodate. And so it was a customer care uh, struggle to accommodate all these stranded passengers because planes didn't fly for, I think it was 11 days after 9-11. And Furthermore, we sold tickets to the hijackers at Hotwire. Um, not the September 11 tickets, but the September 10th tickets from, I think it was Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan that put the Boston Logan cell into position. And so, and the company didn't know it. And actually I didn't start talking about this until a year or two ago. Um, so most people don't even know this, but it was something that the senior leadership knew and, and felt awful over. And we had you know, federal agencies um, you know, meeting with us to gain gain information about what we knew about these customers, obviously. So there was this really weird 
sense of guilt at the at the upper levels of the company that we were somehow connected with this awful thing. And then from a business standpoint, nobody traveled. You know, it's like it was like a year or more. But you know, you think about COVID now with nobody traveling. I mean, really, nobody traveled back then because people were af- afraid and you didn't know if the planes were going to fall out of the sky. And um, so it was a pretty tough time to be an online travel company. Um, we did a down round. We did layoffs. We went from about 200 employees to 100 something, 125 employees or something like that. And the company really struggled and almost failed. But we hung in there. We pivoted towards hotels. We pivoted the marketing towards drive rather than fly. So, you know, take that uh, in-city getaway, um, you know, go stay downtown for the for the night or the weekend um, because people were, again, were afraid to fly. But the hotel business and the rental car business basically saved us. And by two years after 9-11, 2003, we were on a, a great growth track again through a lot of hard work and, and grit. And we were getting ready to have Goldman Sachs take us public. Goldman Sachs, my former firm and my, my partner, my co-founder, uh, his former firm as well. So it was exciting that we hired our, our friends at, at our old investment bank to take us public. And then Expedia called and offered to buy the company, which it was an interesting and difficult decision because Expedia was always the big bad Expedia to us. I mean, we were a little startup. Uh, just trying to just trying to survive, and Expedia was this behemoth that we lived in fear of. It was always like, oh, is Expedia, Expedia going to come after us in the discount space? And um, the, the implication when they approached us was very much, if you don't sell to us, we will crush you. And so we had to make that decision of, you know, do we roll the dice and uh, go public and try to be independent or do we sell to Expedia? And uh, we decided to sell, which I think was the right decision at the time. And, um, and then I moved up to Seattle to start working at Expedia, our new parent company. I'm curious when the, so anyone who grew up in the 90s and the early 2000s remembers the jingle, the famous jingle uh, on, <laughs> on the commercial. When did that come about? Was that after selling it or, or earlier? No, on? that was that was part of it. I mean, there, there, that was before we sold it. Yeah, hotwire.com. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, our first CMO was a guy named John Homeyer, who um, is, is actually known as the pets.com guy. So people probably remember the sock puppet. Uh, from pets.com. Um, even if you've never used pets.com, you might remember the sock public, which kind of came to symbolize the excess of web 1.0 and the dot-com implosion. So John um, John was the sock puppet guy at pets.com, and we hired him from pets.com in what was really a coup. We stole the pets.com guy, who was one of the top marketers in, in Silicon Valley in the early you know days of the internet. And, um, and then he and his marketing team launched Hotwire and... Um, you know, and, and that became a big part of the brand. You know, I will say there's one, just going back to the Orbitz Hotwire parallels, one of the reasons that Hotwire succeeded and Orbitz struggled is that Hotwire had um, total latitude from its owners to pursue whatever strategy we wanted because we gave the airlines all non-voting stock. Whereas you'll recall the airlines, when they created Orbitz, they hired BCG as a consulting firm. So the board of directors of Orbitz was controlled by the airlines. All the business strategy was decided by the airlines. So Orbitz was forced to focus on airline tickets because their owners forced them to. And even to this day, my guess would be if you think Orbitz, you probably think air, even though Orbitz sells hotels. And probably when you think Hotwire, you think hotels. And um, you know, it's a great case study in the importance of if you do an industry consortium startup, make sure that you have latitude to be successful. This is something that companies like Hulu 
learned the hard way where Hulu was created by, uh, by, by movie studios. And for a very long time, they didn't give Hulu the latitude to be successful. And it was only, you know, the reason that Hulu really started taking off just in the last couple of years was when its cap table finally started getting rationalized and they started getting more independence and latitude from their, um, their studio owners, they could start making the types of decisions they wanted to make. And I've seen so many consortium companies be hamstrung by ownership that doesn't give them that latitude. And then I know um, you mentioned, so Expedia buys out Hotwire, and then I think you're there for like an, a year. Was that part of the deal? Like you had to stay there for a year post-acquisition? Um, no, it wasn't. No, I, I could have stayed or, you know, could have stayed for as, as long or as short as I wanted. Um, I left uh, Expedia after about a year because I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. I, I just felt like Expedia was a big company. And it was hard for an individual to make an impact. I was running the hotel business um, globally at Expedia, and um, it just wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't startup-y enough for me. <laughs> and so I left with a couple other folks who who also wanted to, basically the founding team from Expedia, the people that had started Expedia itself within Microsoft about 10 years earlier, or maybe maybe six or seven years earlier. Um, uh, they left, and, and I left at the same time, and, and we joined together to create what would become Zillow. So, you know, I have a question about something you've mentioned, and it's something I've thought about a lot, but no one's ever really said it in the way that you did, but it was something about the f- fact that you can't really make an impact at a, you know, big corporation like, you know, Expedia. Um, and it's funny because I feel like when every entrepreneur starts a venture, their goal I mean, maybe not every entrepreneur, but most entrepreneurs want to be successful enough to the point that their startup becomes that big venture, that big enterprise that has systems and has hundreds, if not thousands of people. So where do you think that disconnect is between like, you know, the startup and the enterprise where you no longer have an impact, right? Like, why is it that people want to start a startup and become an enterprise, but then don't want to work for it, right? Like, as somebody who's built several businesses, I feel like you would be in a great position It's something I think about a lot because when I retired from Zillow about a year and a half ago, Zillow was about the same size that Expedia was when I, you know, mocked it for being big and slow and impossible to have an impact. And, um, uh, and I mean, I remember, I remember the time when I decided to leave Expedia, I was at a company offsite, a leadership offsite, and there were 70 or 80 people at this executive offsite. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm at a company that's so big that they're having an offsite just with the executive team and there are like 80 people here, you know, uh, that's just, that's so, it's such a giant company. And then I was at a Zillow offsite, you know, two or three years ago and there were about 80 executives there. And I remember saying to the executive team, you know, this is kind of ironic. And what we need to do is make sure that we at Zillow keep the culture entrepreneurial enough and make sure people are empowered enough that we don't lose a generation of great people the way I feel like Expedia did um, at about the same size. So, it, you know, there are, and, and one thing I always I said when I was running Zillow is people would, I would refer to Zillow as a startup, even when we were a 15, $20 billion public company and, you know, had a couple thousand employees, people would say, oh, that's not a startup. I said, no, no, no. It, a startup is a state of mind. You can have a big company that still operates like a startup. You can have a small company that doesn't operate like a startup. Like there's, startup doesn't mean a, a particular stage. Um, and and so it's, it's a philosophy. It's, it, you know, Zillow even today, you know, I'm now with my co-founder running it, um, Zillow is still entrepreneurial. It's long-term oriented. 
it takes risks, it empowers individual people, it pushes decision-making as close to the product as possible rather than keeping it centralized. Um, and, um, you know, those are all attributes of a startup. So, um, but it's it's hard for sure. You know, the bigger you get, um, the, the harder it is. Um, you know, The Innovator's Dilemma is a great book that talks about this issue and, and the, the, what it argues is that the reason it's hard for big companies to stay innovative is that people have jobs to protect revenue. And it's really two things. Number one, like there's somebody who runs this business unit and their job is to like protect it and and therefore they're entrenched in the status quo. And the second issue is that as the numbers get bigger, all these new innovative things look small and irrelevant. You're like, hey, should we spin up a new business to do whatever? And people are like, well, it can only be 10 million of revenue and we've got, you know, 2 billion of revenue. So it won't move the needle. Don't bother. And, you know, you'll never know whether those seeds properly planted and cultivated might grow up to be bigger than, you know, the core business if you don't plant them. So I think if you have a culture at the company that still plants those seeds and still takes those risks and um, empowers people to act like a startup, then you can still have a startup philosophy, even when you're a much bigger company. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think one of the things is like when you're a startup too, when you're very early on, you don't have as much to lose. Like when you're a larger company with thousands of employees, it's harder to take those risks. And um, I mean, innovation is is definitely a risky game. Like anyone, any company who's innovating and changing perhaps their entire business model to survive and, and sort of go into the next wave of whatever is happening uh, that's a big risk. And we've talked to many founders um, that have been in that position and have risked it all just to stay relevant. And, and some for some it worked and some it, it didn't. And it's just like part of the game, I guess. But um, yeah, so tell us a little bit about, okay, so you leave uh, Expedia. What happens next? Like you want to start another business. What, how does the idea for Zillow come about? We were buying houses. <laughs> um, the, you know, we were, we were all shopping for houses at about the same time and the co-founders and we were we were kind of bummed out by the state of the internet we're like oh my god it's 2005 the web is you know 10 years old and there's still no great resources online for real estate information and the category leader was a company at the time called realtor.com which was basically controlled by the real estate industry and so venture capitalists had passed over the category of real estate and instead focused on jobs and you know healthcare and, and fintech and all these other industries because it looked like there was a winner. They were like, well, there's Realtor.com. It was you know, a public company, a couple hundred million dollar market cap. It had a lot of traffic. And, and we looked at it and we're like, this sucks. Like, it's just not that good. Um, and there are, some, there are a couple obvious product things that they don't do because the industry won't let them do it. This actually gets back to the Orbitz example with you know, kind of industry controlled consortium companies that aren't allowed to innovate. You know, for example, they didn't show how long a home had been on the market for. Why? Because the, the real estate agent doesn't want you to know that this market, this home's been sitting on the market for six months. They didn't show price cuts. You know, if a, if a home drops the price by 20%, they, didn't, they only show the new price, not the old price. Why? Because the real estate agent doesn't want you to see the price cut. They didn't show reviews of real estate agents. Why? Because the real estate agents didn't want it. They didn't show valuations of what houses are worth. They didn't show what people paid for. It was, it was more of a tool benefiting the agents as opposed to yes. the, the buyer. Yeah. Exactly. Or exactly. sellers. There was no consumer yeah. first real estate website. Um, and so we said, you know, we think we can be um, focus on the consumer and, and prioritize the consumer rather than the industry. 
And if we do that well enough, we'll get a lot of traffic and then the industry will um, will eventually embrace us because of the traffic that we have. And so the very first idea in 2006 was this estimate. It was let's put a price on every rooftop. And people forget this or they don't know this, but for the first two years, mm-hmm. Zillow only had estimates and, and public data, bed, bath, square footage, prior sale price, estimates. They had no listings. So th- it became the third most visited real estate site without any listings of what was for sale. <laughs> um, and it was only at that point in 2008, once we had a lot of traffic and there was a financial crisis because of the mortgage implosion, that at that point we went to the real estate industry and said, please give us your listings. You know, would you like your listings to appear on the third most visited real estate site? It'll cost you nothing. And we'll display your listings for free with all their photos. And it was perfect timing because the real estate industry needed that distribution for their product because people weren't buying their product because of the recession. And so Zillow added listings and then rental listings and then a mortgage marketplace and then reviews of real estate agents and and many other products over the next decade or so. Um, but that's were how Zillow got started. Were you monetizing? Were you monetizing in those couple first years? No. Well, we had Google AdSense, so we had a couple bucks coming in, but no, not really. Um, you know, the the original business plan was no business plan. It was let's try to build a huge audience. I mean, it's very like crazy if you think about it um, from you know now, but it was let's try to build acquire a very large audience through a viral product that has a, a significant voyeurism to it which was let's snoop on people's houses and see what people's houses are worth. And if we get enough traffic, then we'll get listings. Then we'll figure out how to make money because surely there's so much money sloshing around this industry, 80 billion of commissions, 20 billion of advertising, 1.4 trillion of real estate transactions a year, uh, tens of billions of dollars of mortgage origination revenue. Like we'll figure it out if we have enough traffic. And we did eventually, but uh, there was no real revenue plan at the beginning. Right. And I feel like I'm going to be playing devil's advocate here today, but, uh, and, and I love Zillow. And again, when I worked at the real estate company, I was on it all the time. We had to be, cause that it, it just becomes a part. It's kind of like if you're, it's like Gmail, right? Like you, you have to use it or outlook or whatever. It becomes a part of your tools, like, you know, the Trellos of the world, Salesforce, et cetera. But I kind of lost my train of thought here, but I, I got, I, I got it back. So, I guess for some perspective, you know, you got you as the co-founders had just, you know, I assume made some money from this Expedia deal. Uh, you're buying your first homes, et cetera, or maybe not first homes, but you're buying homes. Um, you know, had you not been in that position, would you have taken the strategy of let's build an audience first and then the money will come? Or do you think, and I guess it's hard to say in hindsight, that you would have focused on making money? And the reason I'm asking is because a lot of folks when they do start a company, aren't in the position that they can afford to just build an audience for two years without making money. Um, so I'm curious as to your perspective and how that played a role. Um, well, we weren't funding it. The, the venture capitalists were funding it. But but your point is, is, is a good one anyway. I mean, we raised the, the first six million the, the founders put in in that seed round. And then we raised a 20-something million dollar Series A and then another 25-something million dollar Series B. Um, and in total, we raised about 87 million prior to going public, which by today's standards is is nothing. I mean, Low. 87 million is, is is like that's it's like, like a pre, pre- yeah, that's that's like the, <laughs> the that's like the deal fees on a you know your typical Series D round nowadays, and or yeah, yeah it's like a it's like a super seed round. But anyway, um, 
but um, uh, but but I mean, I think. Let's see. Um, I mean, I, I I think you're right in that it is important. As, let me put it this way. If I put my investor hat on and I'm a very active angel investor now, I would be hard pressed to fund a startup that was as, uh, you know, clueless about its monetization model as Zillow was in its early days. Um, so you're right. Monetization is more important than we gave it. But Spencer, why is that? I mean, just, just to take it deeper, why is that the case? I mean, you clearly with Zillow proved and I maybe with dot LA a little bit as well, and we'll get into dot LA that acquiring users and acquiring an audience is a very important part of your business. Cause you can have a monetization model and have no users. Right. But again, it's a chicken and egg situation. Which one comes first? You build the monetization model and then users, do users and monetization. I mean like yeah. why, why not invest in the folks that can build the audience? Um, well, <laughs> It's it's a bet. I mean, it's 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 just a high stakes bet. Um, I mean, we were we clearly could not have raised the Series A that we did were we not the Expedia and Hotwire people. Um, so right. we benefited from that free ticket, <laughs> um, you know. And and I guess I guess if I, I should kind of revise what I said, I suppose if if a founding team came came to me and and they had created, you know a couple billion dollars of, of value from their first two startups and said, we're going to go disrupt this huge industry. You know, it's healthcare. All right. And we've got this unique idea on how to attract a huge audience healthcare. We'll figure out monetization afterwards. Um, right. You know, would I trust that they would be able to acquire the audience? Mm, maybe it's hard. To, it's hard to say, but I mean, we have that free pass um, right. because of, you know, because of our XPD experience and, um, it's, you know, I, again, I see it now as an angel quite a bit. I just, it just happened yesterday where a founder who has had a lot of success starting other companies, um, you know, they're, they're, um, this, this, this founding team is that this, that this person is involved in is now raising money again. And I was having a discussion with a VC where I was like, I don't know, I don't really love the idea. I don't really love the deck that much but I wouldn't bet against this person. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what advice to give was kind of what I said to the VC. Right. Like, I, I don't know, you know, and I'm not sure how, how the VC is going to decide uh, how to handle that, but you, you definitely get a lot of leeway if you've had success before. Right. Fair, fair or unfair. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, a, I'm the beneficiary of that now <laughs> with my new ventures. Right. I mean, because I've had success right, exactly. in Alvar and, and, oh, yeah. Zilla, and I didn't mean to know. be, I didn't mean to be super like, you know, uh, intense there, but I was just really curious because you see it all the time where, you know, I mean, Pat and I see it all the time. We'll see like these insane series A's or seed seed funding rounds. And you're just like, how, like what, what, how did this happen? Like, how did you get $45 million? Right. Like series A for like, I, I don't even know what you do. Right. It, it's just, it goes like that whole fact that the founder yeah. kind of had one proven or two proven yeah. like, well, I'm, past, I'm, so. so Austin, you know, Austin, Allison and I, when we started Picasso, we raised $17 million on a deck, um, yeah. in a, yeah, there you seed, go. a super seed basically. And why? Because he started dot loop, which Zillow bought for more than a hundred million bucks. Um, and then he was an executive at dot loop and he's the CEO and, you know, I'm the co-founder and, and chair and, you know, my track record has been good so far. So we, um, you know, we benefited from that. Um, Absolutely, and it, yeah. it, I mean, it's 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 unfair. It's also a little bit self fulfilling, right? It's like okay, because we were able True. to raise that that big round, 
we um, were able to hire a great team. We had a stronger launch as a result. Now Picasso is, you know, is cranking and, you know, we have a much better chance of success because of our prior success, mm -hmm. not because we're more skillful operators, but because we just, you know, have, um, you know, have a, a, a bigger stack at the table. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't want to be that guy, but you know, you, you always bring up the, the example of like Quibi, for example, you know, it's like they had a, mm -hmm. they had a, they raised a bunch of money, but Big it just didn't work out <laughs> for right. a amount of reason. Yeah. So it's like, you, it's like, I don't, it's not to say, not to discourage uh, people to start a business, even if it's going after an industry that's really massive and perhaps right. controlled by a few and tough to break into. Like, uh, you know, there have been examples of startups. Um, yeah. You know, for sure. For sure. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go so far as to say that as an angel investor, I would rather back somebody with a chip on their shoulder and something to prove yep. who feels like the world's been unfair to them and they've been slighted um, than um, you know, frequently than someone who's had success before. I mean, it's very, it's very case specific, but I mean, I can think of right. one startup where I'm an, I'm an angel in and I'll, I'll give you two quick examples. In one case, I said to, you know, in one case is a 21 year old founder and the fact that, and he's already had three failed startups before. So he's learned a lot from, from those experiences. And he's so passionate about this particular problem and, he had he he just feels like he has something to prove, and and that's very encouraging for me as as an angel investor. Another example is a is a probably late twenties founder, and I said to him, you know why why are you why do you care about this problem? And he said like Spencer, I obsess about this problem morning, noon, and night. If I don't start this company, I'll never forgive myself. Like I I just it's not work to me. It's like I have to solve this problem for the world. And neither of these guys have had success before, really not at scale, but I'm an enthusiastic backer of both of these startups um, because of the, these attributes of grit and of, you know, have, feeling like they have something to prove in, in both these cases. Yeah. And I think it kind of ties into what we were talking about before about just big companies and innovation. It's kind of similar. It's like the taking those risks when you're a very successful founder and you've had some successful exits or whatever under your belt, and perhaps you've put in a lot of money um, into this business. Maybe you're a little bit uh, more uh, hesitant to take big risks because you have more to lose, like your rep like your reputation, what people think about you know yeah. your career. Like that could be something that could go in your head versus like a 21 year old <laughs> kid that. You know, I, don't, I mean, they've had three failures before. Don't have as much to lose. Yeah. So they're just kind of going no, out, right. taking big. No, I know? mean, I'm 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 laughing because that's kind of my situation, right? It's like, well, <laughs> yeah. I could just be an uh, I could just be an angel investor, but I've decided to, or I could be a venture capitalist, um, but instead, I've decided to keep starting companies. And so I started I've started two in in 2020. LA, which <laughs> is a news site that covers LA tech, and Picasso, which uh, allows people to buy portions of second homes, and I'm starting two more in 2021 and I'm putting myself out there and, you know, maybe these things will fail. Maybe they'll succeed. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but it's pretty, it's pretty nerve wracking actually. And, and, uh, and uncomfortable. So Spencer, I definitely want to talk about a couple of those things, but quickly backpedaling to Zillow. I mean, you know, pun intended here, Zillow is now a household brand, right? Everyone knows Zillow. You look at it, whether you're a homeowner you look at it if you're looking to buy a home in three years, you're looking at it as a real estate agent, right? Investors, et cetera. It, it, it grew to become obviously a massive, massive company uh, that's had a great impact. Um, as the founder or one of the founders and the CEO of Zillow, 
up until recently. Um, talk to us a little bit about some of those successes, some of the challenges, and how you were able to remain entrepreneurial uh, along the way, both individually but also as a leader uh, to the, those that were a part of the company. So, I mean, I remember... I feel like it flipped a couple of years ago. Like the company started in 2006. We went public in 2011, 2013, 2014. You know, I'd meet people at a dinner party like, oh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Zillow. And some of the time they'd know, some of the time they wouldn't know. And then, you know, starting in 2014, 2015, I feel like everyone started to know it. And it was, it was completely noticeable, that change. And at that point, actually, we, we knew we'd made it when we started seeing more organic press mentions um, in true media, like in, like in TV shows or movies or, or songs uh, or on Jeopardy, <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. That's, that's when we're like, okay, we, we didn't, I'm like, I turned to our CMO and be like, we were on Jeopardy last night. Did we pay for that? Like how much did that cost? And she's like, no, 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 we didn't pay anything for that. I was like, oh my God. And then I'd be like, okay, someone said they saw this on this TV show. You know, do we pay for that? No, no, we didn't pay. I was like, oh my God. Or you someone's, know, or someone's tapping and they're like, we're thinking about a home on Zillow while we're sleeping on the pillow or, you know, whatever they're doing, right? Like just coming up in random songs. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, that, that was, um, that was incredibly rewarding um, because very few brands reach that level, obviously. And I'm extraordinarily proud of it. Um, uh, in, in terms of how we got there, um, you know, it was a lot of trial and error. I think perhaps the, the most successful, I remember the most successful, but, you know, we, we got a lot of things right in terms of traffic acquisition. We got the product piece right, which was a fun, easy to use, you know, great UI on desktop and mobile. Um, we got we got mobile right. We were one of the clear leaders in, in mobile, in real estate, still are. And that was incredibly valuable um, and allowed us to grow. We got SEO right, so search engine optimization, making sure that, um, you know, we did well in Google search results. We got TV advertising and, and other forms of paid acquisition right. Um, and then actually one of the things that hasn't been spoken about much, which might surprise people, is we really nailed the data PR piece, and w- which a number of other companies have copied uh, since then. But what this data PR piece was the fact that we identified an opportunity to become the leader in the, as a spokesperson for housing data. That you know, the media always has to talk about real estate, and they always tend to cite Case Shiller as the um, you know the market leader. Oh, the home prices are up three percent year over year, according to Case Shiller. And so we developed a strategy to replace Case Shiller as the brand that people that the media uses. And executing that strategy nationally and locally was took a lot of time and effort. But we did it, and such that today, if you're reading an article in your local newspaper in Toledo, Ohio, about what's happening in housing, it's probably going to cite Zillow data, not Case Shiller data. And at the national level, when you're you know watching whatever CBS Evening News, you're probably going to refer to Zillow data instead of um, you know, instead of Case Shiller. And you you see companies like um, you know LinkedIn and Indeed and Glassdoor trying to do the same thing with their jobs data. Um, you know, right. you, you see, uh, I don't know, pick your pick your vertical match.com now does it with dating data, um, et, et cetera. And um, it's something that we've heard. Zilla. 
I know you were there for like almost 14 years, which is a very, very long time in today's standards. <laughs> 14 years anywhere. Yeah. It's like, holy shit. So um, when, I guess, when did the time come where you decided like, I need to, I mean, I know like it was a couple of years ago, but what kind of yeah. happened where you decided? Well, so I had moved, um, I had moved from Seattle, you know, about, after about being in Seattle for about 15 years, my wife and I, who were both from LA, looked at each other and said, you know, Wow, I, neither of us expected to be here for that long. My wife's a doctor, and she we were living in San Francisco when I was at Hotwire, and she was working at Stanford, and then she got into med school at the University of Washington. So she wanted to move to Seattle to go to medical school, and I wanted to move to Seattle because Expedia is based in Seattle, and Expedia just bought Hotwire. So we moved from San Francisco to Expedia, uh, sorry, San Francisco to Seattle to go to Expedia and UW Med School, thinking that it would be like a year or two, and then we'd go back to California, and. In the blink of an eye, 15 years later, we had formed a life in Seattle. So it felt like time to get back to L.A., where we were both from and where we wanted to live. So um, uh, we moved back to L.A., and then I commuted from L.A. to Seattle for about three years to continue to run Zillow. And that was exhausting. <laughs> um, you know, it's, hmm. it's, this, that was at a time when you had to be at corporate headquarters. Um, you know, of course, nowadays, not so much. Um, but, um, but so just after commuting for that long and feeling like I had accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish at Zillow. I led the business model extension towards what they call Zillow offers, which is the buying and selling of homes. And it was that business model extension that really catapulted the company from you know, five or 10 billion in market cap to 20 to 25 billion in market cap. And um, having implemented that and having built an incredibly strong company culture, it felt like I had you know, nothing left to prove there. And it was time to stay in LA and stop commuting and start working on other, on other projects. <laughs> I'm curious, did the CEO of Zillow, a.k.a. you, have to read reviews of realtors while buying a home in L.A.? <laughs> um, I, I, so, funny story. Um, when I was um, looking to buy a home in L.A., actually, I'll tell you two quick uh, stories about using my own product. The first was um, I emailed an agent um, about a house on Zillow, and he called me back like two seconds later, and uh, I'm like, okay, you know, thank you. You know, just want you to know that, um, I'm trying to still keep really low profile. So like, you know, I'm Spencer, I'm the CEO, but like, you know, I'm going to make you sign a non-disclosure agreement. Don't tell anybody. He's like, okay, but you should know that your company is recording this call. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you use this, you guys use this service set to make sure to measure how good the jo job the agent does on following up with the lead. And it tracks and measures yeah. the call. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. Totally forgot about that. So I'm like, okay, hang up. I'll call you back on your cell phone so that Zillow doesn't record this call. Um, anyway, so that was the agent that I used to buy my house in L.A. Um, and then the other, my other Zillow real estate story was um, I was buying a different house. And, like, I bid, you know, X for this house. And they came back at Y. And then I, I bid slightly higher. And they came back at this other price, which was, like, a totally random price. It was, like, 782439 or whatever. I was like... And I said to my agent, who of course I also found on Zillow, I said, like, what is this price? Like, <laughs> why, why does why does it end with a, a random number? He's like, that's the zestimate, you dummy. <laughs> and and I was like, oh yeah, I went and checked. I was like, <laughs> and so they had countered at the zestimate, um, and they didn't actually know who I was. Um, they were just it's total coincidence. And I was like, okay, I guess I guess I have to now buy it at that price. And so I bought that house at, at the exact estimate because mm -hmm. um, because I sort of had to. That's, that's amazing. That's awesome. Okay, so I know you're working on a lot of things right now. So let's take it one by one. I want to definitely touch on all of them. So, <laughs> okay. uh, one of them being .la. When you come to LA, you start .la, uh, which we're very familiar with and love everything you're doing. So, kind of tell us a little bit about what the thought process was behind, sure. why you started it, and what the idea. Yeah, we were there. like day yeah. one users. Yeah, all right. I remember Thank when you guys. It, before it came out. 
Yeah. So look, You've I mean, every before you launched. Yeah. Thank you. When I moved back to LA, I was like, oh my God, there's so much tech here. Like I had no idea there are founders and startups and angel investors and VCs and growth companies and unicorns and big point? public companies. You know, this it's happening. Like it's totally happening. Why is nobody telling this story? Like, where do I read about what's happening in LA? And you know, TechCrunch kind of sort of covers it a little bit, but not really. They basically cover the Bay Area. And Hollywood Reporter, Daily Variety, The Wrap, they cover Hollywood, not tech. And the LA Times certainly doesn't cover tech. So there was just nothing, nothing to read about what was happening. There was no community building around LA tech. And there's something in Seattle called GeekWire, which is the tech news service that covers Seattle. And I was always a huge fan of it. And I feel like GeekWire contributed significantly to Zillow's success, that every time Zillow launched a new feature or hired a new executive or took new office space, GeekWire was there to report on it. And that steady drumbeat of local journalism was really valuable to Zillow's growth. So I wanted to create the GeekWire for LA. And so I raised a $4 million seed round from the LA tech community, from Pritzker, Graycroft, Anthos, M13, Crosscut, um, Kavu, Fifth Wall, I mean, you name it, like every LA venture firm, I, I twisted their arm to invest and a number of uh, Bay Area and, and, um, and Seattle firms as well. And, and actually GeekWire invested also, which was a great, um, you know, great partner, the beginning of a great partnership. So we launched about a year ago. Um, actually, we've only been out for 11 months and now GeekWire is a leading resource covering LA tech. We do events and podcasts and webinars and, and put out news obviously at, at .LA, DOT period LA. And it's working in the sense that, I mean, I, I, I think, and you, you know, I appreciate you guys listening or you guys, you know, reading it, but like, that's the place to turn to, to figure out what's happening in yeah. the community. In and I'm curious what, like the, the, what your idea is of the future of this sort of like local journalism, which I really love. And I think there's another example of like a really big uh, publication that, that started that way. And I can't remember which one it was, but I read about it. Patch. But I don't know. No, no, no. It was like one of the big ones. Uh, um, but anyways, um, so like with everything that's happening now with, with um, yeah. it seems like, you know, people sort of becoming it's becoming a little bit more decentralized in terms of like startup hubs and things that are happening and people are moving to Austin and this place and that Utah and Colorado. And, and so, you know, in terms of like, yeah, like geographical journalism, local journalism, what do you think happens? Well, so, I mean, COVID is, is, is good for every place, all these other tech hubs except San Francisco, because it's, it's just, it's creating a diaspora of, of tech talent and LA is a beneficiary of that for sure. Um, in terms of, uh, so, so there's no shortage of, of stuff to cover. I mean, every day dot LA, you know, we could cover a hundred stories a day and we have capacity to cover like five. So there's yeah. just tons to write about. Um, uh, in terms of business model <laughs> though, uh, it's tough. I mean, there are basically two ways to monetize a news site or a new service. One is with a paywall and the other is with events or sponsorships. And I mean, maybe you can also have a job board or something like that. But um, I I'm, have tried desperately to not have a paywall and we don't have a paywall at .LA because to me, that's off mission. I mean, the whole mission of .LA is to get everybody in the LA tech community, the receptionist at Snapchat and the intern at that law firm that does tech you know, in LA and whatever. We want all like million people that are in and, in and around LA tech to read .LA. And if there's a paywall, then that's going to dramatically limit our audience. So we don't have a paywall and I don't want a paywall. And then of course, COVID has made it very difficult to have events. Uh, so we've done great virtual events, but those are harder to monetize than in-person events. So we'll see what happens in, in terms of business model. Um, we still have a long runway um, because we raised a $4 million seed round. 
But um, I'm very, very pleased with the journalism and the brand building and how quickly we've become a household name in the LA tech community. Um, but, you know, we have some work to do uh, with respect to business model um, and, um, you know, and, and getting to a self-sustaining break even like any startup. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely challenging. And I had met with Ben, like, I don't know, eight, nine months ago. Great guy, Ben Bergman. And I know he's been doing great work. And One like Pat reporters. said, we read this stuff all the time. And, um, you know, I remember it was like, I think it was early in the pandemic, or I don't even know if it was this year. I've lost track of time, but (laughs) I I live in Glendale here in LA. And I know the Glendale news press, basically who the LA times had, had owned, they shut down along with a couple of local papers. And I want, I basically called it and said, I want to buy it for $0 and basically just take over the trademark or whatever. And they're like, no, it's worth a lot more. And I was like, what do you mean? It's worth a lot more. You clearly are shutting down. You have like, you know, less than thousand customers getting like a physical paper there's you know and basically i didn't really want to do much with it but it was going to basically be like online i just want to own the domain uh but even they struggled right like so what is it whether it's local journalism or just content in general right i don't think it's only journalism how is it sustainable to make money long term is it going to be based on certain writers that perhaps monetize themselves like, or, and LA becomes a platform. I mean, like what, what are, what are you even thinking about in terms of the content play? Well, so, I mean, if, we can ha- well if we can have physical events, I think we'll, we'll be able to easily monetize to, to break even uh, or better. Um, uh, you know, th- there's, there's no, there's a lot of money in the events business and the, community needs to the la tech community needs to be brought together now more than ever physically to network to um to learn um and and dot la can do that better than any organization or venture capital firm or 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 any other institution um so i'm hopeful that you know that that will be the way that dot la ends up monetizing is primarily through events that bring people together um uh but you know there are there are other possibilities as i say like I, I would not, I prefer not to have a paywall. <laughs> That's the way a lot right. of media has gone. I find it frustrating as a user when you're, you know, you hit a paywall on CNBC or Bloomberg or LA Times um, and uh, it fragments audiences and everything becomes very kind of partisan and, um, and narrow. And I'm, I created .LA to, to bring people together, <laughs> to bring the LA tech company, right. the LA tech industry together. And I think, you need that to be an open marketplace, an open market space that is free. Will we see more dots? Pardon me? Will we, uh, see, we see more, more dots? dots in the um, maybe, maybe. We haven't decided yet. So will we expand to other cities? Um, not sure yet. There are other cities that um, have the same dynamics that LA has, which open, that, which created the opportunity for .LA, which is to say lots of tech activity and very little local journalism covering it. There, there are many right. other cities like that. Um, but our, our strategy all along was let's try to make this work in L.A. And um, L.A., a city that has a lot of people, a lot of tech and a lot of money. And, you know, if we can make it here, then we'll evaluate whether to take it to other cities. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I think we're both very bullish on local journalism, so we're excited <laughs> to see how this plays out. But so moving on to, to Picasso, which is another company you started sort of in the real estate realm uh, as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So. Picasso aims to democratize access to second home ownership. Um, most people, once you reach a certain income level, aspire to own a second home. Most people can't afford Very it. Very niche. Or, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, having being able to own a second home is is enormous luxury. It's 
a place where you can get away from work, get away from society, be the best version of yourself. You can be the parent you want to be or the husband or wife that you want to be or, you know, be, be the just kind of it's a sanctuary. And yet it's really only available to the one percent. And the reason that it's only available to the one percent is because it is the most underutilized asset known to man. Most second homes sit empty 90 something percent of the time. And so through the concept of co-ownership, Picasso aims to democratize access to second home ownership, meaning you can go to Picasso and buy a portion of a second home to right size your ownership of it. So right now, for example, on Picasso, you can find, um, you can buy one eighth of a, of a home in Park City or one quarter of a home in Napa Valley or an eighth of a home in Santa Barbara for a fraction of the price of the whole home. Or you can go to Zillow and find any home that you like in any of these cities or, or anywhere, and you can bring that to Picasso and we'll turn that home into a Picasso for you. So go to Zillow, find a, a million dollar home in Santa Barbara that you love, but if you're only gonna use it you know, an eighth of, the, uh, eighth of the year, which is 45 days a year, buy an eighth of it, we'll help find the other seven people to buy the other seven eighths, and then it will be a Picasso, meaning You'll use the Picasso owner app to schedule your visits. We'll do the property management for it, and it'll be seamless, and you'll own a portion of the home. Why? Again, I'm just I feel I feel bad for playing devil's advocate today. Uh, but why couldn't Zillow do this, or why couldn't you do this at Zillow with first homes, second homes, third homes? I mean, like it's a concept that could this what you just said with Picasso mm -hmm. democratizing access. That mission can be applied to first homes as well. I mean, it's just a, at the end of the day, it's just a home. Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's hard, it's hard with the first, first homes because people have to be at the first home, you know, most of the time. There are many people have to yeah. be at their primary home, although there is a, a, a world, there is a future, maybe, you know, five years from now, if, if almost all companies are remote, I can imagine some people living a very different lifestyle. Maybe they rent a small apartment sure. and they own you know, six Picassos, you know, an eighth of a house in six different cities and they're or, kind of digital. Or nomadic lifestyle. Or, yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. That or the more B2B approach where uh, companies are buying ownership in certain homes for mm -hmm. their employees Maybe. in certain <laughs> regions. Right? Like, you know, let's yeah. say you're Google and you want 1,000 in Palo Alto, 1,000 in Pasadena, California, 13 in Austin, you know, whatever the case may be. And now you're just, you know, it's a B2B home. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know how it's going that could be that could, yeah for sure i mean uh, look i what we're doing is is um is hard <laughs> it's a short version you know yeah. and, and yeah. any 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 you know all startups face the risk that a big company can go do what they do um you know and right. and at zillow we lived in fear of well, why can't google do this i mean all we're doing really is putting property data on a map i mean gosh google google do that in their sleep you know um and and yet zillow was very focused on it and singularly focused on it and was able to you know, beat back competitors like Google and Amazon, both of whom flirted with doing something, you know, similar things to what Zillow was doing. So, um, you know, Picasso likely will have competitors for now. We, we don't have any direct competitors, but I don't, I, I don't think we'll be so lucky as for that to always be the case, but we're singularly focused on this problem. It's very operationally intensive. Um, and I, I think that the brand will stand for something over time so that you'll think of Picasso as the place to own uh, a portion of a second home. Mm -hmm. awesome. All right. So uh, just to wrap things up, um, I want to talk about this, uh, this phenomenon that has uh, sort of come out of, uh, I don't know, I don't know where. It's first I learned about <laughs> it this year called SPACs. It's come out yeah. of a SPAC. Come out of a SPAC, uh, which I know you're very involved with. Um, you're very active and, and uh, <laughs> working on stuff now and um, tweeting about it and all that kind of good stuff. And 
Um, so SPACs, you know more about yeah, it than me, I do. I'm not let me teach you. Explain let me teach you a little. Yeah, explain it. <laughs> so, 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 so SPAC stands for a special purpose acquisition company. And these things have been around for a long time, for like, I don't know, 20 years or something. Uh, what it is, is you take public a company, just like you would take public a regular company, but the company has no business. <laughs> the only business is, it, it's basically a shell company. Okay. And you take this shell company public and it is publicly traded. You uh, sell shares in an IPO to public market investors. In, in the case of my SPAC, which is called Supernova, it trades on the New York Stock Exchange. It could have traded on the NASDAQ, but we chose the New York Stock Exchange. It has a ticker, SPNV. Um, it has a stock price. You can buy shares of it. You can sell shares of it, et cetera. And um, the, the, the company, we raised $400 million in the IPO. So the only asset that this company has now is $400 million that is literally sitting in a checking account that owns treasury bonds. And a SPAC now, by law, has a two-year window to merge with a private company, a privately held company. And when it merges with that privately held company, that private company goes public by virtue of that merger. So in the case of Supernova, for example, we raised $400 million and um, uh, we are out looking for a great private company worth between about $1 and $5 billion. So think of venture-backed unicorn. And we will merge with that venture-backed unicorn. And then Supernova will cease to exist. The ticker will change to you know, whatever the, a good ticker is for that company. The name of the company, Supernova, will change to whatever that company uh, is called. And um, our board of directors, which has five independent directors, and, and then you know, there are four of us in management. So the nine of us, some of us will go with that pro forma company. Some of us won't. Depends on the type of company we merge with. And so if you, the reason that SPACs have become so popular in such a short period of time is to answer that question, you have to separate out the three constituencies. Okay. So let's quickly go through them. There's the public market investors, the people that bought $400 million of stock of Supernova. Those are hedge funds and mutual funds. They love SPACs. Why? Because they just put $400 million into my shell company. When I go identify a private company to merge with, they get to vote whether they want to stick with it and flip their shares into this, this new company or not. So it's kind of a free option for them. And they think of it as a way for them to get a toehold on a potential Spencer IPO, you know, an IPO of a company that, that I find. Um, and if they don't like the deal that we bring to them, then they get their money back. So it's totally risk-free to those guys. If you think about the sponsor group, that's me and my team, we get shares in the IPO. So we now own stock in our own company, and then that stock flips into whatever company we merge with. So we make money if we do a successful deal. That's why we like it. I might have missed this, but that $400 million or in other SPACs cases, whatever the amount is, is that already a part of the company or is it only yes. deployed when you it, find it something? Is, it is a part of the company. It's literally, we have it. It's, it's in a supernova checking account. <laughs> Um, we can't really do anything with it, um, except use it to except buy for, the company. Right. Yeah. And, and the way the math so, works, so the, restricted funds. Yeah, pretty much. Exactly. Be why? Because let's say Fidelity or, or, you know, Vanguard or whoever bought $25 million of the Supernova IPO. They, they didn't basically, we agreed to hang on to their $25 million until we bring them a deal. And when we bring them a deal, they get to vote. Do you want to approve, do you want to roll your shares essentially, or do you want your $25 million back? So we have to keep it sort of in escrow. Got it. Does that apply to me and Pat right now? Let's say we buy Supernova shares. 
we are we i mean obviously we don't have yes. as much you know it does get the game. it does but, but do you become a voting member or yes. voting shareholder yes Got it. when we when we have the deal you, you'll get to vote whether you want to redeem or, or not redeem yes um so so then it, the the most interesting question is the private company right the unicorn so and that's where the biggest shift has happened over the last year or two and unicorns or private companies are, are more interested than ever in going through a public through a SPAC merger for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's real quick. I mean, it's like a couple weeks rather than a year or more. I've taken companies public traditionally, Zillow, and I've been on boards of other companies that have gone public traditionally. It is a bear. It is a year long process. You spend a ton of money and effort and then you know, you're getting ready to go public and then somebody shoots a missile at somewhere else in the world and all of a sudden the price of oil goes up 40% and the IPO is yeah. off and you're like, wait, what just happened there? So there's huge. And I'm sure you'll get it, get to it, but it's like, you mentioned, you know, you, you had, you've been in this position before you've taken companies public and it's been around for like 20 years, but why the sudden, like what happened in the last yeah. year? Yeah. So like, some like something in just, like a, an attic you discovered, like dusted it off. And no, you're like, Oh shit. This it's, it's, it's just the, it's the, it's the chicken and egg. It's that in a short period of time, a couple of good companies decided to do it. And then a couple of smart, good people like me decided to come <laughs> come into the game. And it's kind of creating a quick network effect. So Virgin Galactic was one of the first, um, then, um, um, which was Chamath's group. And then, um, you know, Open Door is doing it now. And DraftKings did it. Most also, 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 also Nicola. Nicola. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Nicola, so, we had the so, founder of <laughs> Okay, so so Chamath is, I mean, deserves credit as a pioneer. And, you know, he jumped in and said, hey, the pool is really warm. And then, you know, People like me and then Reed Hoffman and Mark Pincus and Kevin Hartz from Eventbrite and, you know, Brad Gerstner from Altimeter and Mark Stad at Dragoneer and, uh, you know, and dozens of others have, have joined the party. And so, you know, now kind of good people get good deals and good deals get good people. And now it's it's that's why nothing like changed regulatorily. It's just sort of all of a sudden a light was shined on this other this other way to do it. And the advantages mm. of the private company are the speed, the certainty, the sponsorship. So, so basically, if they go public by merging with Supernova, my team and I provide them the advice and counsel through that transition from private to public and then beyond. So they're going to go pay fees to go public anyway. They're either going to pay 7% to Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, and they're gonna, those investment bankers are going to take the cash in fees, and then you're on your own as a public company. Or you can basically pay my group in stock, and we stick with you because we're incentivized to. And we're there for several years after the IPO. Um, and and so the, the, it's kind of six half dozen in terms of the fees, mm. especially when you consider that the traditional IPO is underpriced so dramatically. The typical tech IPO trades up 46%. Yeah. So you leave a huge amount of money on the table if you go public traditionally. And, and what effect does this have on the investment banks? Yeah, I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but like the underwriting process, the traditional yeah. underwriting process. Like so it has. What, uh, so SPACs have the potential to disrupt investment banks, um, pretty pretty significantly, because the IPO underwriting business is a very lucrative business, and and this is a direct competitor of investment banks. For now, investment banks, and I'll give them credit, they've decided to embrace the SPAC product rather than fight it. And so, for example, when Supernova went public, we used J.P. Morgan and Jefferies. And, um, you know, they did a great job on our IPO. So they're basically saying, we're going to disrupt ourselves. We're going to take us back public. And they earned a fee on the $400 million that we raised. And then Supernova is going to go take some private unicorn public through a merger, and they won't be able to get that IPO. But they're like, you know what, rather than like 
hope this thing doesn't happen. <laughs> Let's just embrace our own disruption and, and help the SPACs by underwriting them. It seems like it's a convergence of venture capital, private equity, investment yes. banking, like everything come together. Because, I mean, that's what you're basically doing. You're, you're raising a bunch of money exactly. to identify a potentially successful business to take public. Exactly. A, and, and, and I didn't even realize until I, I started this just how perfect this product is for me and my interests. I mean, it brings together everything, kind of my whole career. This is the perfect way to end this, this conversation. Like, what have I proven good at? Like coaching, mentoring, building company culture, scaling companies. That's what a SPAC is. It's venture capital at scale. It's taking a private company that's got a couple hundred million of revenue and maybe a couple hundred or a thousand employees, taking it public and then helping it for the next five years of growth. And like, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> that's what I did at Zillow. That's what I've done on a number of boards. I'm on the board of Palantir, which I'm doing that now. I was on the board of Zulily, went public to private. I was on the board of TripAdvisor for a decade. Um, and, you know, this is, I taught the course at Harvard Business School and called Managing Tech Ventures, which is basically how to run a big tech company. And, and that, you know, that I created that course and, and, and taught it at HBS <laughs> for a semester. And so, like, that's what SPACs are, is a financial product that brings together mentoring and company scaling in the public markets. I think Dot LA should do like a class on this and sell it. <laughs> I've been trying to get Sam to. It's 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 tricky. Like we have we are we are so ethical about the the line between my personal stuff and Dot LA that it, to a fault. Like I keep <laughs> I keep saying to Sam, our CEO Dot LA, like you know this is really interesting stuff. This is really important. Like we really need to shine a light on. It. He's like I don't know. It seems like maybe you're talking your book. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, no. Anyway, so yeah, we're we're like so squeaky clean that we under we under focus on the Spencer stuff. Um, well, well, but, I uh, think it is important to be squeaky clean, especially after the whole Nicola stuff that happened. I mean, we had Trevor yeah. on the show right after oh, yeah. the you know public, and um, I'll save my thoughts on him for offline. But you know, I think that that exposed a lot of things. And then recently, like I know, like the Oak Tree acquisition group, because or the OAC that was, I think, is Hims and hers going public with them. And there was yes. a few others there yes. under hot water as well. So, I mean, we've been reading about it and it's just like, it just, you know, you know, when something seems too good to be true, you're just like, it probably is. And so that's why, you know, when, you know, we, we obviously wanted to discuss this with you. It was interesting because I just want you to shed light on it so that others that probably feel the exact same way as us can be at least a little bit more educated about the process. Yeah. It's just that we don't know about it. Like, you know, Pat well, went so to, I have to plug you know, one thing and really learn about it. So one of my other projects is, and this is all on my website on spencerascoff.com, but, but um, my son and I have a podcast called Dad, I Have a Question, where I teach my 10, now 11-year-old son about all sorts of stuff. And we have an episode called What Is This Pack, and where That's I explain cool. to my 11-year-old what this pack is, and he asks great questions, et cetera. So anyway, it, it's a great primer you know, for, for, for all this. And so if you're interested in learning more or, you know, if you want, you, you want to teach your kid what SPAC is or your mom or your dad or whatever, you know, check out that podcast. Episode. Yeah. I think, I think one of the most exciting things about just in, for the individual investors is like, you get to, it's kind of like you get to um, get, get in the game before, like traditionally, like you couldn't really, there was this like this period of time when a company goes public that you can't invest in it. Um, yes. Like I remember wanting to invest in like Twitter when they were first went public and I couldn't because like, I don't know, there's like this blackout period or something um, that was reserved for like institutional investors. So it's, it's, a, it's cool. Like you could take those bets on the entrepreneurs or the people that are out there looking for these, 
unicorns um, that if you believe in them and you, you think they're successful and have a good track record and, and all that kind of stuff, then it could work out really well for everybody. It's like a win-win, yes. win-win, win-win scenario. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's really exciting. Yep. No, I mean, we could probably sit here and talk with you for hours, but I know you have like five, <laughs> six companies to run. Uh, so we're going to let you go. Uh, but you, we guys. really appreciate it. And I mean, it's been a super insightful a conversation for both of us, I'm sure. And I think everybody who listens uh, is going to definitely take a lot away from this. And uh, you've obviously had an incredible career and you're still such a young dude. So we're looking forward to seeing Hopefully we can meet in person uh, yeah. someday soon. I know. Yeah. That would I mean, be nice. It's <laughs> craziness. Yeah. I know. So thanks for having so me. Thank you again. And, you know, hopefully we will, as Pat said, uh, chat with you soon and see you soon. But keep on rocking on. Thanks, Spencer.